0: Hello and welcome to Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Corr, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertpearlmd.com together. We also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Each Sunday night, we post an episode rotating in order. This week's show, Coronavirus the Truth, followed by Breaking the Rules with a new guest each time and then Unfiltered with Zubin Damania, aka MD, joining the two of us and finally Diving Deep, an exploration into controversial healthcare topics of major importance. You can find links to all the episodes along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean?
1: Jeremy, what we're seeing now reminds me of Charles Dickens' tale of two cities, although it's really a tale of three different continents. In the U.S., new cases are averaging under 30,000 per day, a massive drop from a couple of months ago. Hospitalizations are now under 6,000 having topped 28,000 in January, and deaths are averaging slightly more than 700 per day, down from more than 1,200 two weeks ago. In contrast, we're seeing a huge spike in cases and hospitalizations, both in Asia and Europe. As an example, Hong Kong that experienced a total of 200 deaths over the first two years of the pandemic, and they accomplished that by intense testing and social distancing, They've already seen 5,000 deaths in 2022. And China, South Korea, and New Zealand have had similar spikes in total infections with the city of Shanghai and its 26 million population on near total lockdown. In these countries, the ever more transmissible Omicron variant that we've been talking about for now for over a month, BA2, is responsible. The big fear in these countries is that with so few people having been infected and relatively low vaccination rates, that most people remain vulnerable. As a result, once the virus begins to spread, it will be impossible to contain this highly transmissible variant. And the numbers not only of cases, but also hospitalizations and deaths will grow exponentially. In the US, the situation is different. BA2 is similar to BA1, which, as you remember, was the original Omicron strain. As such, since most of the population has some degree of immunity to this Omicron variant, there are likely to be milder cases with fewer people becoming severely ill. BA2 now accounts for slightly more than half of US cases up from the 35% we discussed in our last podcast. Having said that, the United States isn't fully protected from another surge. Overall, only about two-thirds of Americans have received two vaccine shots, although among individuals most at risk of severe disease due to age and associated medical conditions, 80% of them have received two vaccination doses. And similarly, Only 44% of all eligible people who have been vaccinated have received the booster shot. Something vital in the context of these more transmissible variants. When it comes to spikes in cases, what we've seen in the past has been the US following by a couple of months Europe. And we are about to enter that timeframe. And there's some early evidence it may have begun. The data from sewage water is one of the ways that researchers follow the prevalence of this virus. Because people excrete the virus in the stool, measurements of viral load in sewage, which is part of the wastewater detection programs, can quantify the prevalence of infection and foretell spikes in cases. What we've seen over the past few weeks is viral load measurements having gone up with 37 percent of wastewater monitoring sites having seen a 100 percent increase in viral counts and 10 percent having reported an increase of 1,000 percent or more. And cases are starting to climb in the Northeast, a geography that often leads the nation due to the high air traffic coming from Europe. The final part of the calculus indicating danger ahead is that nearly all restrictions on vaccination and masking have been lifted, Hawaii, Last week was the final state to end statewide mask mandates. As such, the US is simultaneously doing well and seemingly at risk. Time will tell whether the threat materializes or fades away. Despite most vaccinated people experiencing mild infections from Omicron, we can't forget that among the unvaccinated, the risks remain very high. One particularly disturbing statistic from the recent BA1 Omicron spike was the rise in COVID-19 hospitalizations in children under the age of five, this obviously being a population that is not vaccinated. And the increase was five times as great with Omicron than it had been with Delta. More specifically, it was 2.9 kids per 100,000 children in that age bracket from Delta, but soared to 14.5 per 100,000 infants most recently. This surge in severe infections, as you might expect, has raised the calls for the FDA to approve the Pfizer Moderna vaccines for children under the age of five, but neither company has received the green light so far. At the other end of the age spectrum, both Pfizer and Moderna asked the FDA for authorization for a fourth shot. This would be a second booster for people previously vaccinated. The initial request differed between the two companies, with Pfizer wanting it only for people over the age of 65, Moderna requesting it for all age brackets. As you know, the approval that was given earlier this week was to revaccinate and boost all the people who received any of the three vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J, but to limit it to adults over the age of 50, who are at least four months after the last booster shot, and for people at high risk due to immunocompromised states, most commonly following transplant or cancer chemotherapy. What was interesting is that the approval that the CDC gave was for people over the age of 50 to receive the vaccine, but they didn't recommend it for everyone in this group. There's sort of our two rationales. The first is that there's good evidence that a single booster isn't sufficient to prevent severe disease. Two boosters do that, but they don't help people avoid becoming sick. So for individuals at low risk, a second booster does not add a lot of protection. And a second reason may be the fact that the federal government is running out of congressionally approved dollars for COVID-19 testing, treatment, and vaccination. As such, if everyone eligible tried to be boosted, the government wouldn't have the dollars to pay the costs. What's still on the horizon is the possibility that this fall, there will be a vaccine available that is specific to the Omicron variant, And so people who are at high risk should go ahead and receive the second booster to maximize their protection. For people at low risk, particularly the younger individuals above the age of 50, they have a difficult choice. Should they go ahead and get boosted now, which would probably slightly lower their chance of becoming sick, or wait until the fall when a more specific Vaccine would become available, maximizing the protection and minimizing their chance of developing a COVID infection during the upcoming fall and summer season. The challenge that regulatory agencies have is that the Omicron variant itself is so new that the data is not fully available and that the rules that apply. the less transmissible variants can't necessarily be used for the new ones. It is hard to imagine that two years after the start of the pandemic, there remains so much uncertainty, but that is the case, and it's why intense interest in COVID-19 continues despite the relatively low risk among the vaccinated and boosted.
0: Robbie, we keep hearing from meters who are interested in updates on ivermectin. What's new?
1: Jeremy, I think it's important to put this medication in context and reduce the emotion on both sides of the issue. First, there was good reason to consider this drug to treat the coronavirus. It is one of dozens of what scientists around the world consider potential medications. The term used is repurposed. Meaning that the medication has been proved to be effective in treating other problems, and Known to be safe at the specific doses administered. These are often the best first line medications when our country and the world confront a new infectious agent. And it's where researchers and scientists look first. But despite the optimism, invariably early data on a new treatment prove contradictory. Researchers in various laboratories apply slightly different conditions and measurements to evaluate the efficacy. So there's some confusion, and we've seen that when it comes to this drug. But ultimately, policy experts and scientists and governmental agencies wait until there's a large, well-controlled study that standardizes the evaluation, and to accomplish that takes time. But when it comes to ivernectin, we have such a study now. In this latest trial, 1400 patients with COVID-19 who were at high risk of needing hospitalization from underlying chronic diseases like diabetes or cardiovascular disease were either given ivernectin or a placebo. There was no difference in outcome between those individuals who either got the drug or the placebo. In addition to using hospitalizations as a clinical quality outcome, The researchers also looked at how fast the people in each group cleared the virus from their system. They looked at the length of hospital stay for those who required admission, the necessity of being put on a ventilator, and the mortality. In none of these measures was the ivermectin better than the placebo. Finally, the researchers compared two specific subgroups from the ivermectin and placebo recipients those individuals who were given the drug or the placebo starting 24 hours before admission, and those individuals who were treated sooner and who said they adhered to the dosing schedule. And again, the researchers failed to find any difference between ivermectin and placebo. These findings don't mean that the drug couldn't work under different conditions. As an example, one of the earliest studies from Australia showed that it was effective in the laboratory against the virus. But the researchers there used 100 times the approved human dose. And there are strong reasons to believe that it would be toxic in people at this high dose. That doesn't mean that at some drug level there would not be a positive response. We just have yet to find it. Should researchers continue to explore the possibility that this drug could work at a different dose, or should they go on to test other repurposed medications? That's up to them to decide. But based on the research data to date, two conclusions seem valid. The first is that prescribing of at doses that are currently used for humans isn't effective against the current coronavirus, and that delays in treatment, opportunities to use other drugs that have been proven to work, shouldn't be considered as an alternative, and vaccination remains the gold standard. Rather than continuing to point fingers or make accusations, I believe the time has come for people to move on, accept the science, but to stop the personalization of the criticism of each other. Jeremy, when it comes to science, there's As we've just said, a specific approach that researchers take to figuring out what works and what doesn't. Intuition early on is needed to consider something new, but ultimately scientists find answers that are 99% certain. As a patient, how do you personally figure out what might work when the data is preliminary? And then how do you know when it's time to embrace the science regardless of whether it supports the early enthusiasm or contradicts it? Robbie, I think the scientific approach is something that
0: was uh, put under a microscope during the pandemic and the politicization of the pandemic hurt the credibility of public health officials, news outlets, and people's faith in science. Uh, during the pandemic, many qualified and brilliant scientists had dissenting voices on everything from the effectiveness of cloth masks, whether lockdowns did more harm than good, and a wide variety of potential treatments for COVID-19. I'm a firm believer that it's very important to listen to the scientific voices that go against the grain and are scoffed at by the mainstream media and scientific voices of their time. I've seen big name, highly credentialed healthcare experts that I've known for years back before the pandemic even uh, considered to be quacks by people with no scientific or medical background whatsoever. Robbie, dissenting voices are very, very important in science and often make the biggest and most important breakthroughs. Look at Galileo saying the earth revolves around the sun or Ignaz Semmelweis telling doctors to wash their hands in between patients, both persecuted and considered quacks in their time. Credible dissenting voices are important to listen to, to have their voices as part of the conversation, to get their ideas out there and on the table. That being said, Once these dissenting voices share their opinions, it's very important to study their ideas and use the scientific method to discover if there is any credibility to their ideas. If their hypothesis is wrong, that's okay. It should still be studied. Science should always be about being open-minded, following the research and results, and we need to let science be science and not be politicized. Robbie, I read that there's data showing brain damage following COVID-19 infection. Uh, What did researchers find?
1: Jeremy, as we say again and again, when it comes to this coronavirus, there is so much we have yet to learn. For some reason that scientists don't fully understand, this virus inflicts harm in ways that most viruses don't. Researchers looked at brain scans taken three years apart, meaning from before the pandemic to the present, and then compared the changes in the brain in those individuals who had COVID-19 with those that who had not. The patients were all between the ages of 51 and 81. Overall, they found a moderate amount of difference between the two groups, including in the post-COVID cohort, a reduction in brain size, a decrease in gray matter thickness in the frontal lobe, which is an essential part of cognitive thinking, and tissue damage in the regions that are functionally connected to the primary olfactory cortex, vital to smell. And as you know, loss of smell is a common and relatively unique symptom of COVID-19. Consistent with these findings, the subjects who had been sick from COVID took longer to complete cognitive tests relative to the ones in
0: the control group. Robbie, many listeners have written to us wanting more information on what is so
1: commonly called long COVID. What can you tell them? Chairman, I wish we had great understanding of this problem, but so far it's relatively elusive. We know that it affects millions of people. It's the third most common neurologic problem being seen today, and it gets in the way of people being able to work the way they did before they became sick. Its neurological symptoms include impaired attention, reduced speed of information processing, and decreased memory. It's associated with increased rates of anxiety, depression, disturbed sleep and fatigue. Whether this is a direct damage from the virus or secondary damage from the inflammatory process the coronavirus elicits remains uncertain. What's most concerning is that these findings and the other systemic ones often occur in people with mild disease and it can begin weeks or even months after an infection. Unlike the brain damage we just talked about, in long COVID, the damage is done predominantly to the white matter of the brain. It most closely resembles what's been called chemo brain, the mental difficulties patients experience during chemotherapy. In addition to the neurological and fatigue problems that long COVID produces, some patients have shortness of breath, cough, chest or stomach pain, headache, joint and muscle pain, heart palpitations, and diarrhea. In addition to this more generalized neurological loss and that associated with long COVID, is a third entity that people can develop. This is a form of autoimmune disease that results in a person's immune cells attacking their own body causing inflammation and tissue damage to their heart, lung, kidney, and skin, and that can last after the acute episode is over. And finally, in children, there's a multisystem inflammatory syndrome that can happen both during and or immediately after COVID-19 infections, affecting multiple organs simultaneously. The challenge in sorting all these pieces out is that most of the symptoms from long COVID and many of these other medical problems are subjective and they overlap with each other. As an example of fatigue or difficulty concentrating, it can happen to anyone who spends time in a hospital and mental health issues, they can occur after social isolation or following negative economic struggles outside of anything having to do with the viral illness. Doctors aren't sure whether each of these medical problems are unique or whether they're simply variations of each other, they're not sure which symptoms are caused by the virus itself, which result from the body's inflammatory response, or which even come as complications of medical treatment. Regardless of the exact etiology, scientists agree long COVID is a real problem and that vaccination remains the most effective way to avoid it.
0: Robbie, we've discussed the battle between the WHO, an organization that focuses on COVID-19 globally, and the CDC that is most concerned about the U.S. What's now new that Omicron has replaced Delta?
1: As the data becomes clearer and vaccine availability is growing globally, the positions in these two organizations are actually aligning more closely. In the past, the WHO focused on vaccine equity, and they opposed booster shots in wealthier countries like the U.S., while people in poorer ones didn't have vaccine access at all. Now the WHO is supportive of giving booster shots to people who are at risk of severe disease, even in wealthy countries like the U.S., despite so- shortages elsewhere. As you note, what's different now? Omicron. During the Delta wave, the CDC recommended boosters to help Americans reduce viral spread. That would not have meant the WHO guidelines at the time. But given the high transmissibility of Omicron, two doses aren't enough to prevent severe infection. In fact, immunity after two doses is estimated to be 78% lower against Omicron than it was against Delta. Consistent with this recommendation, the WHO committee in its report noted that updated vaccines able to address new mutant strains are likely to be needed in the future. As much as people want this virus to remain constant, the reality is that it continues to evolve in ways that benefit the pathogen at the expense of people. This new WHO guideline would make a large percentage of Americans eligible for a booster shot given their older age and the high prevalence of chronic diseases in the United States. However, since the CDC, not the WHO has authority in the US, This shift in WHO policy doesn't change actual medical care delivery in our country.
0: Robbie, our good and interesting news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good and interesting this week?
1: Jeremy, the first piece of good news comes from an Axios survey of 1,105 people. It found that the emotional and physical health of Americans is improving as vaccine restrictions and mandatory masking are being lifted. Overall, 83% of people describe their health as good. And 84% said that their emotional well-being is also good. Both are the highest since early in the pandemic. Almost half of people were hopeful about the future, the highest percentage since vaccines first became available. As a result, 64% of respondents now favor the elimination of all restrictions, and that's up 20% from six weeks ago, although 75% said they'd be willing to return to masking if the number of infections soared again. Interesting, only one person in three surveyed was aware that over a 1,000 Americans are dying each day from the virus. So despite the amount of information that we believe is broadly available, the survey contradicts that conclusion. In interesting sporting news, vaccination status is becoming almost as relevant in baseball as batting average and runs batted in. Overall, Major League Baseball's players have been less willing to be vaccinated than in other professional sports. And with the baseball season about to begin, the recently elected mayor of New York revoked the city's mandate for vaccination for professional athletes, which includes the two New York Yankees superstars who seem unvaccinated at the current time. As you might imagine, other city workers, including firefighters, have protested what they see as special treatment for professional athletes, but Mayor Adams' decision doesn't address the baseball team's difficulties. With traveling to Toronto under Canadian border restrictions, teams will not be able to bring unvaccinated players into the country. As such, the vaccination status will impact the lineups and outcomes of games, and the players, according to the new labor contract that was recently ratified, won't be paid for the games they miss. At this point, all Major League Baseball will say about vaccination status is that 88% of Tier 1 employees, and that includes not just players, but also managers, coaches, and trainers remain or are vaccinated. But since support personnel are not part of a union, almost all of them are mandated to be vaccinated, which means that the player vaccination rate, it could be 80% or less. And with Toronto, one of the preseason favorites to make it to the World Series, This could be a major competitive advantage for this baseball team north of the U.S. border. Finally, in a strange type of good news, the nation's major credit reporting companies will remove 70% of what falls under the heading of medical debt from people's blemished record. Overall, medical debt is the most common source of credit difficulties in the U.S., and it can make it incredibly hard for people to buy a car, obtain a mortgage, or even get a job. Now the three big agencies, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, will give individuals a full year to pay their debt before including it in their calculations. They'll ignore any debt under $500, and they'll eliminate the record of failure to make the payment once it is ultimately made. Although the current pandemic was the catalyst to making these companies exclude medical debt from their calculations. The overall problem of medical debt has been growing for years, and it's likely to become even worse in the future.
0: Robbie, listeners continue to thank us for focusing on the broader issues of healthcare and bringing the same honest analysis in these areas as we do when it comes to coronavirus. What can we tell them?
1: One of the biggest overall healthcare stories actually overlaps with COVID-19, and that's the major shortage of healthcare workers resulting from people leaving the field for less stressful and less risky jobs. And surveys indicate the problem is only going to get worse next year. As a result, the cost of medical care, it's likely to soar as salaries or the prices of supplies rise. And already problems with access are becoming increasingly common. Among 2,000 adults polled, 45% said they experienced difficulty scheduling a doctor's appointment and 25% said that their planned surgery had been delayed due to lack of OR and hospital bed availability. Moreover, one in five reported that the doctor's practice had closed, although we can't be sure if that means the physician had left the profession or simply moved to a different location. Overall, 20% of people since the start of the pandemic have skipped a routine appointment due to the difficulties they encountered. The second story data showed that more than a quarter of the nation's 100 hospitals with the highest revenues sued patients for unpaid medical bills between 2018 and 2020. More specifically, 26 hospitals filed 39,000 court actions against patients, including both lawsuits and wage garnishment and personal property liens. Among these 26 hospitals, 16 of them sued for a total of $71.8 million, with the average suit being $1,842. Finally, in a third story published in the journal Environmental Research Letters, the medical dangers from global warming were calculated, and the potential impact, very scary. The scientists determined that a two degrees Celsius rise would cause a 42% increase in temperature-related deaths and a three-degree rise, that would make the number of deaths increase by 75% during heat waves. For perspective, the authors note that the current forecasts are that the world is on a course to see a three-degree centigrade rise if nothing is done to flatten the current trajectory. Jeremy, how is your local community now approaching issues like employer vaccine requirements and mandatory mask wearing? And how much of a difference do you think it's made in the economic viability of businesses? Ravi, as far as I know,
0: most places don't require these things anymore. I think it makes a big difference, to be honest. I still see some people wearing masks around, but it's becoming increasingly rare. Uh, The only businesses around here that still require a mask that I can think of are Uber and then the Apple Store, which their policies come from their corporate office, not locally. Uh, from an economic standpoint, this makes a massive difference. When I see restaurants, bars, stores, et cetera, they are much, much busier now than when they had requirements in place. In fact, I don't think all that many of the restaurants, bars, or even stores in town were actually enforcing the mask mandates around here for fear of you know, losing business. The more we return to a normal pre-pandemic economy, the better for the economy as a whole. Uh, this is especially important in a period of the worst inflation in recent history and we really can't allow any more small businesses to fail.
1: Robbie, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, the battle of self-interest in healthcare versus the patient almost always ends with self-interest dominating. We recently saw that happen when it came to the Biden administration's plan to let people immediately obtain oral medication to prevent severe COVID infection when they tested positive for the disease at a pharmacy. The idea was simple. The pills needed to be started quickly within five days of becoming infected. When the test was verified at the pharmacy, why ask the patient to incur the cost and add a time to see a physician when a pharmacist who is a medication expert can ask the necessary questions and dispense the drugs on the spot? In Europe, this pharmacist-led approach is possible for numerous medical problems and allows timely, lower cost treatment for people. But the AMA derided this solution, lamenting potential patient safety concerns and negative health outcomes. But of course, the real issue was that it would reduce physician income, potentially be the proverbial camel's nose under the tent that would establish a pharmacist-directed process to become broader in scope in the United States. The next day, the Biden administration clarified that this approach would only be permitted in pharmacies with on-site medical clinics. No reason was given. But if I think about it, what difference would availability of a retail medical clinic make, since the risk of taking a pill and needing immediate medical treatment is minuscule? And of course, in response to this restriction, the American Pharmacists Association attacked the new plan As too limited. When you dive deep into the rationale, it becomes even murkier. The AMA pointed out how pharmacists didn't have all of a patient's drug history, but that's true in an urgent care clinic at every appointment with a new doctor. The AMA didn't point out how the traditional model of physicians working alone rather than multi-specialty medical groups contribute to the unavailability of medical information. In practice, pharmacists with their shared electronic health medication system often have a more complete set of information on the drugs that patients are taking than the physicians who prescribe them. No one in the healthcare industry seems willing to make medical care more affordable for patients if it will, even in the slightest way, cut into their income. It's true for hospitals, drug companies, insurers, doctors, pharmacists, and device manufacturers. As a result, Americans personally owe $195 billion in medical debt, according to new research from the Peterson Center on Healthcare. One in six people say they would need to take on credit card debt to meet an unexpected $400 medical expense. Everyone's solution to the affordability crisis somehow benefits themselves. Drug companies believe costs will go down if people buy more drugs. Device manufacturers say the same about machines. Doctors and hospitals say that undergoing more procedures uh, will make people healthier and lower costs. Insurance say by their health plans each time. The outcome is higher costs for America. None of the current parts of the healthcare system have recommended any solution that reduces the income in their own subsector. As a result, American healthcare is the classic example of an industry ripe for disruption. It's not that medical care, be it in a hospital, through a drug, in a doctor's office, or even over the internet, couldn't be provided at 30% less cost with 30% better outcomes. It's that the providers of care seem more interested in a solution that benefits themselves than helping patients. As you know, I'm writing a series for Forbes on breaking the rules of healthcare. These are the unwritten rules from the past that stand in the way of high-quality, convenient, Affordable medical care today, approaches that benefit patients at the expense of providers the providers believe they shouldn't be followed. You can't find it in textbooks and medical journals, but everywhere in healthcare, people know it and they adhere strictly to this self-serving rule. As a reminder to listeners, this
0: episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus the Truth, and have a great day.